Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm today's host, Alok Tai. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Vibe Bio. Vibe partners with patient communities to develop novel therapeutics. I'm really excited to be joined today by Ying Huang, the CEO of Legend Biotech. We're going to be talking today about cell therapies and CAR-T specifically, and some of the exciting work that Legend is doing in this space. Ying, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you a lot. You know, maybe to kick us off, we'd love it if you could give us a quick intro on yourself and your background and how you got to where you are today. So I was trained as a scientist. After I graduated from my PhD program, I became a bench scientist working at Sharon Plow, which today is becoming a branch of Merck & Company. So I was a medicinal chemist, and I worked at Sharon for over nine years in the field of cardiovascular and CNS disease areas. After toiling in the lab for nine years, I transitioned into finance and became an equity analyst for uh, investment banking. And eventually, I worked 12 years for five different banks. My last job was at Bank of America Merrill Lynch, covering the U.S. biotech industry as an equity analyst. In 2019, I joined Legend as a CFO and I helped the company raise about $160 million in private crossover funding. And in June 2020, we brought the company public in NASDAQ. So it's been almost two years since we became a public company, and we're very excited to announce that our first commercial drug, Carvicti, has been recently approved by FDA. Amazing. You know, certainly sounds like a phenomenal time to be at Legend. You know, before we get into the meat of your programs and the approach that you're taking to cell therapies, would love it if you could give us an overview of perhaps the cell therapy landscape and sort of the state of the art today. Yeah. So cell therapy is a very young field. In fact, the first patient, I'm not sure if you guys have heard Emily Whitehead. She was the first patient who received the CAR-T therapy at UPenn Hospital about 10 years ago. She was suffering from acute uh, leukemia as a pediatric patient. Now, after receiving her CAR-T therapy, now she's been cancer-free for 10 years. So really, this is a young field, but it's very exciting because we're working on live cells as a therapy for cancer patients. And the first ever FDA-approved drug was only approved about five years ago. So the field is very young. However, there's a lot of interesting science here. So essentially what we're doing is we're taking T cells, which is a part of the patient's own immune system out of the body. And then we use genetic engineering to install a car, which you can liken as a GPS device on a car, because with that car on the surface of T cells, now these T cells will be guided missiles so that they can go and seek and then kill those cancer cells in the body. So it's a very interesting science and it does require very complicated manufacturing. But sometimes when you see the clinical efficacy, it's really amazing. Like I mentioned, you know, for the first patient, Emily Whitehead, she has been cancer free for 10 years. So this is where we're working. And besides T cell, the field is also doing research on other types of cells, including B cell and natural killer or NK cells as potential therapy. So far, the six therapies that are approved by FDA, there are uh, CAR T therapies, so they're T cell therapies. Awesome. And you know, as you think about this space, obviously, as you alluded to, autologous therapies have a certain complexity to it in terms of manufacturing and supply chain. How do you juxtapose the maturity of autologous therapies with allogeneic therapies? that are also coming up in this space? And that's a great question for the field of cell therapy developers. So the first step is we try to use the cells we collect from the patients and use that as a cancer therapy. Now, of course, because we're working on this as a 100% 
fully personalized medicine. It's great for the patients because we're taking the cells from them. Therefore, you don't have to worry about rejection by the body. However, it does involve relatively um, lengthy manufacturing period. It takes about three to four weeks for us to complete all the manufacturing and then infuse the uh, T cells back to the patients. And secondly, we cannot realize so-called economy of scales because it's impossible to manufacture in the batch hundreds or thousand patients drug using this technology because we have to take the individual cells from the patients themselves. So that's why the field is doing a lot of work on so-called allogeneic cell therapy. That is, can we use the cells from the donors as a starting point and then make a big batch that hopefully can supply enough drug for hundreds or even thousands of patients? This is a very exciting research subject, but it's not going to be easy because it's been taking us you know, more than 10 years to get where we are in terms of autologous T-cell therapy. Now for allogenic T-cell therapy, we have to use very complicated science to see if we can avoid the rejection by the patient's body and also still come up with a very effective therapy. So it's a very exciting direction we're taking, but uh, it may take a while before that becomes reality. Well, you know, I think there's certainly great to see, you know, within say half a dozen years of the first getting approved, seeing a myriad of new types of therapies and innovations building on each other. Let's put it that way. So, you know, with that, we'd love to learn a little bit more about Legend and its approach, as well as Carvicti, your, your most recently approved medicine. So Legend was founded about eight years ago in uh, 2014, and it was founded by a small group of scientists who specialized in antibody engineering. And our technology platform was built on Llama. Llama has very uh, interesting characteristics for their antibodies. First of all, the antibodies generated from the Llama is very small. So because of its small size, it does not cause too much rejection. And also in terms of the uh, protein sequence similarity to that of human, it's similar. So again, that means, you know, we don't have to worry too much about so-called immunogenicity from human. And secondly, because of their small sizes, you can actually design those llama antibody fragments in the tandem or string design. So you can make a bi-specific or even multi-specific CAR-Ts. In fact, if you look at the design of our lead product, Carvicti, which was recently approved by FDA as a treatment for multiple myeloma, we have actually two single-domain antibody fragments that are connected to the T-cells. So these two antibody fragments can grab the cancer energy, in this case, BCMA, on the cancer cells, and it forms a very stable binding complex. And that actually is the reason behind the amazing efficacy we observed in uh, patients in multiple myeloma. So uh, multiple myeloma is actually the second most prevalent hematology um, cancers and affects about 32,000 U.S. patients per year, newly diagnosed. And then if you look at prevalence of the disease, it's about 160,000 patients in the U.S. who suffer from this disease. And even though we have a lot of commercial therapies available in the market today, multiple myeloma has been deemed as incurable. The reason is every time a patient responds to one therapy, eventually the cancer relapses. And then we just cycle those patients through different therapies. And that's why the median survival right now is about five years. Unfortunately, every year, about 13,000 Americans would succumb to this disease. So there's a lot of unmet medical need in this disease. And when we conducted our first trial called Partitude 1, we enrolled patients who have tried everything in the market. Unfortunately, their cancer keeps progressing or they could not see any response to the current therapy. Yet, by using our CAR-T therapy called Carvicti, we were able to demonstrate 98% of response rate, which means 98% of the patients who took Carvicti were able to see their tumor burden decrease in the body. 
More importantly, we also saw 83% of stringent complete response. And that means if you do a blood assay, you will not be able to find any cancer cells in the blood. Not only that, if you go into the bone marrow, which is the origin of the disease, you will see that if you assay more than a million cells, you won't see even one or less than one cancer cells. So that's what we call stringent complete response. So these patients on average can now live with cancer without the cancer progressing, you know, for over two years. And that's a very, very significant improvement from the current therapies. Yeah, wonderful. Now, one thing that we're seeing, at least amongst you know non-cell-based therapies, are combos, even say ADCs, for example, that kind of marry two different modalities. As a layperson, do you see a future whereby cell therapies could be combined with other modalities, or do you sort of see them as kind of unique standalone approaches? So right now, Carvicti has been approved by FDA as a monotherapy, which means we just need to give the patients one-time infusion. That's all. However, it does make a lot of sense to study Carvicti with other modalities, BCMA targeting or other modalities targeting different biologic protein. It could realize synergy. So in the future, I think it's interesting to conduct such an experiment to see if we can realize synergy between Carvicti and another treatment of this. And I'm sure some of those experiments will be done in the clinic later. Wonderful. So, you know, with that, it sounds like multiple myelomas are the next big indication. Any others that are coming top of mind that you sort of foresee for a legend in the coming years? Yeah. So first of all, we view Carvicti as a um, pipeline in one product. That is right now, although we're only officially approved by FDA to treat fifth-line multiple myeloma. That means those patients have already been treated with four different lines of therapy before they came to Carvicti. However, we're conducting more clinical trials as we speak, along with our partner Jensen Pharmaceuticals in second-line and also frontline myeloma. So eventually what we hope is that once the patient is newly diagnosed with multiple myeloma, he or she will receive Carvicti, and then this becomes a frontline treatment. The reason why We think there's a very strong rationale behind Carvicti as a frontline treatment is because we're taking those T cells from patients' own body. So typically, after a few years of different therapies, including immunosuppressive chemotherapies, those T cells have lower quality and also the patients are more frail. And that is why their T cells are less viable. So it makes a lot of sense to use a cell therapy as a frontline therapy because that's when you get to collect the highest quality of T cells from the patient's body. And that is why we're pushing really hard to make this a reality by testing Carvicti as a frontline therapy. So eventually, we're hoping that this drug will be approved for last-line, second-line, and even frontline myeloma patients. And then also beyond Carvicti, we're working on many, many different drug candidates in phase one clinical trials and also in preclinical development stage. So for example, we are looking at some of the allogeneic CAR-T therapies targeting BCMA, including natural killer or NK cells and also gamma-delta T cells. And then besides these allogeneic CAR-T therapies, we're also evaluating whether CAR-T therapies can become a therapy for uh, solid tumors. For example, liver cancer, lung cancer, or uh, ovarian cancer. So we have a few programs, including a couple of programs in the uh, phase one trials. And one of those drugs involves a target called Claudine 18.2, which is heavily expressed in gastric cancer patients. So right now we're conducting a phase one human trial for a CAR-T therapy in gastric cancer patients. And this biologic target is also expressed in pancreatic cancer. So in future, there's a potential to test that in pancreatic cancer patients as well. Besides that, we have two other programs which we're moving from research to clinical stage. One is a DL3 targeting CAR-T for small cell lung cancer. 
The other one is the GPC3 targeting auto CAR T for liver cancer and also non-small cell lung cancer. So we have a lot of experiments that we're running to hopefully realize the vast potential for our T-cell therapy. Certainly sounds like the initial success with Carvicti has given you sort of a, a platform, if you will, to approach other indications, but then sort of could be a, a launching off point for other indications, right, within the space. So in that regard, I'd love to switch gears perhaps for a minute and maybe revert to your prior life as a banker and working on Wall Street. Obviously, you know, we're recording this in, you know, Q1, Q2 of 2022, and it's safe to say that there's been a lot of gyrations in the public markets around the biotech space. Would love it if you could just give us a quick overview of what you're sort of seeing and hearing in the space and perhaps any advice you might have for early stage entrepreneurs who are looking to perhaps to get off the ground and the advice you have for them. Sure. I guess I have to put my old hat uh, as a biotech analyst on uh, for this. As you rightfully mentioned, we're going through some difficult times for biotech industry in the capital market. If you follow XBI, which is the S&P biotech index, you will see that since the index peaked in February of last year, unfortunately, we have lost about half of that value. So obviously, right now, investors are not too bullish on biotech. But I think you have to take that in the historical context. Because in the last two years, in the years of 2020 and 2021, we actually experienced extraordinary growth in terms of capital market activity for biotech. There are about, I think, 150 to 200 companies that went public in the last two years. They also raised a very significant amount of capitals in the tens of billion dollars if you add all the um, activity from IPO, private market financing, and also follow-on offering for the companies that are already public. So I don't think extremely surprising for uh, the industry insiders to see that we're going through some sort of cooling cycle here because you could say that there's a little bit frothy market in the last couple of years because a lot of companies who were very early stage, who did not have any phase one clinical data or who did not even have IND filed with the FDA already went public. So I remember, you know, when I started my Wall Street career back in 2007, back then, if a company in the biotech industry did not have any clinical data, it's very, very difficult to persuade any bank or any investors to buy that IPO, right? But today, of course, things are different because I think as a market, the investors are much more familiar with biotech as an industry. And also a lot of private investors are willing to fund early stage biotech, given the exciting signs. But still, if you look at the secondary market performance, I think the public investors are, I guess, staging a boycott, right? They're saying that, well, we're not willing to pay so much for a very early stage company without any clinical proof of concept. Essentially, you're buying on a petri dish, right? Not on human data. On the other hand, if you look at the history of biotech in the last, you know, 30 years or so, the biotech bear market almost never lasted more than 18 or 20 months. And that is, you might go through some dry spell, but in the end, the capital market activity will come back. The investors will have more appetite to take some risk and uh, invest in early stage biotech companies. So I think we're going through some uh, difficult period here, but this may provide the opportunity for uh, the market to weed out some of the weaker companies without a lot of uh, strong data. And uh, I think, you know, the fit will uh, survive in the end. I'm sure you will see a new class of uh, biotech comes emerging from this as a stronger industry come back. So, you know, I'm still hopeful that hopefully in the next few months, the biotech performance will come back and investors will again invest in biotech. Yeah, wonderful. You know, one thing I'm kind of curious about is how do you see the private markets starting to stack up in this regard? Because 
at least in the tech world, for instance, you often see a lag of, say, 12 months between what happens in the public markets and its impact on the private valuations. What are you sort of seeing on the, on the private market side when it comes to sort of venture crossover, et cetera? Yeah, I think given the underperformance of the biotech sector in the last 12 months in the public market, you're already feeling that chilling effect in the private market as well. You are seeing less private financing being done. You're also seeing that the valuation in those private financing coming down a little bit as well. But of course, there's always a lag, right? Because typically, you know, it takes a couple of years before a company that could raise, let's say, Series C financing and also the timing of IPO. So you're seeing that ripple effect. However, it is with a lag. So I'm sure at some point, you will see that effect being felt by the uh, private investors in a more significant uh, fashion. And then you will also see that, I think the direct result will be the valuation of those early startups will come down. So that's actually a good thing for the public market because that gives more breathing room for uh, the public investors. Yeah, absolutely. It's certainly safe to say that there was perhaps inflation of values, right? In the traditional sense, right? Too much money chasing too few goods. You know, in this context, though, one thing I'd love to get your thoughts on, given that you've seen sort of all three sides of the fence, you were at the bench as a scientist, you worked in capital markets, and you know, run a a successful biotech. One of the things that I've observed is that because of COVID, the prominence of biotech amongst a broader swath of Main Street has increased substantially. We find ourselves thinking far more and repeating phrases like mRNA. That maybe even five years ago, right? No one would have ever given two thoughts, right, to such a macromolecule. I'm curious how you see this broader awareness and focus on both health and medicine amongst the layperson impacting the pursuit of new medicines, impacting the financing, the impacting the startup process. Any insight on that for us? Yeah. If you look at the mRNA sector as a biotech sub-industry, right, you can see it's been thriving and mostly as a result of COVID-19 outbreak because companies such as Moderna, BioNTech uh, were able to produce a vaccine for the mass society within a relatively short period, right? Because we first became aware of this COVID-19 outbreak probably in the spring of 2020. Now, within about a year or so, right, we were able to actually provide a commercial vaccine to the society. And that actually was proven in both clinic and also in real world experience that has been highly effective in preventing and also treating the uh, COVID-19 infections and also all this uh, resulting symptoms, right? So I think it does raise the profile of the biotech industry in that now the lay person and also the general public is very much aware of what science could achieve, right? Because if we did not have a COVID-19 outbreak, I don't know how many of Main Street Joes would know or heard about mRNA as a modality in science. Unfortunately, we did have to experience the uh, massive outbreak of COVID-19. On the other hand, it did raise the profile, it did raise awareness of science and how biotech and industry can actually impact our everyday life. So I do think it's a very positive fact because I'm sure a lot of young folks would be very interested in pursuing a science career, would be interested in joining the biotech industry and contributing to the advance of the science. On the other hand, the fact that you have a higher public awareness, that could result in you know, more public support, more government funding, and eventually also probably lead to uh, capital market support of the biotech industry, which is you know, a positive thing, I think, for science. 
Yeah, I'd imagine it must also be greater access to capital awareness, even in the private markets too, right? Now, granted, in the domain that we're in, you know, a few million dollars might not move the needle in terms of a preclinical program, but it's still additional capital and liquidity that might be available to help support promising therapies as well. Cool. With that, one last question I have for you that I often love to ask guests uh, in your shoes, which is, do you think we're in the golden age of biotech right now? We are. In fact, biotech as an industry is so young because the first ever biotech company was founded in the late 1970s. If you recall names like Genentech, Amgen, Genzyme, you know, we've been here around 40 years. Yet, if you look at the amount of capital that's been invested and also now the commercial drugs that were discovered, developed or invented by the biotech, I think we're actually becoming a very significant contributor to the economy and also to the uh, welfare of human beings. Also, if you look at recent uh, um, scientific advances, you know, we now can decipher the human genome and we now know a lot of genes and also the roles they play in our body. So therefore, there's a lot of discoveries that are being made and that remains to be made given all the science advances. And that's why I continue to believe that we are in the golden era of biotechnology because we're starting to finally know more about ourselves. The human body is an extremely complex machine. And now we're known about small molecules, the antibodies, and now we're working on cells. So I'm thinking that the next 40 years will be even more exciting than the last 40 years. Yes, absolutely. It's interesting that I think many of the modalities that you know, obviously you were working on amongst others have taken a few decades to sort of develop and mature and have this fundamental science sort of well understood. But we sit on a really unique uh, set of tools in the toolkit, right? Cell therapies, gene therapies, mRNA, small molecules, microbial therapeutics, et cetera. If we set cell therapies aside for a second, which modality would you bank on as sort of outperforming, if you will, for the next decade? I think, you know, for the last decade or two, the uh, golden child for pharmaceutical biotech industry has been monoclonal antibodies. In fact, the biggest selling drug in the world now, Humira, it is a monoclonal antibody, right? So I do think that if you fast forward in the next decade or two, I think you'll start to see, obviously, I'm not going to shy to say about cell therapy, gene therapy, and also what we call the bispecific antibodies, because bispecific antibodies is a new generation of antibody. It's actually targeting two therapeutic targets, right? So you could engage T cells, you could also engage another therapeutic uh, antibody here. So I think in the next decade, that could become a pretty uh, significant contributor to the growth of biotech. And again, like I said, I do think there's a long way to go for cell and gene therapy here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's, I think, all positive tailwinds, I'd say, for many of those modalities. And hopefully we'll see those translate to patients as you have with Carbic-D so far. So Ying, with that, would love to thank you for joining us on the podcast today and look forward to having you on again soon as more of your programs get uh, FDA approval. Thank you so much. Thank you a lot for the time and the invitation. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by Alok Tai. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.